Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley. Well, I was watching Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss slog it out in Stoke-on-Trent last night. He sent me a picture of himself necking a shot of limoncello in Lyme Regis. It's all right for some. But coming up on today's podcast, Boris Johnson is plotting a comeback. So we've been looking at history's examples of Prime Ministers who won't take no for an answer. That's coming up in just a moment. But to discuss the TV debate between Sunak and Truss and Keir Starmer backtracking on his leadership pledges, here's David Aronovich and Rachel Cunliffe. The Columnists on Times Radio. Tell you what, you can't, you can't get the staff here, but you can get the best commentary from David Aronovich, Times Columnist. Hi there. And Rachel Cunliffe joins us from the New Statesman in the absence of Danny Finkelstein. I don't know what Danny's off doing. David, have you any idea? I think he's trying to buy players for Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea, who's very cross that not enough players have been bought. Get on with it, Danny. You know, Danny's, Danny's Twitter replies are a thing of wonder. You know, he tweets, you know, some beautiful analysis of the Tory leadership race and his replies are just a sea of 16-year-olds saying, please... Uh, you know, <laughs> announce X, Y, Z. I don't, uh, you know, I don't envy him. Anyway, Rachel, good morning. How are you? Good morning. My Twitter feed is mostly cats. Uh, what? Well, you know, when you're a director of Chelsea Football Club, you know how it feels. <laughs> but anyway, let's get let's get straight into it. I'd say let's talk about the debate we all watched last night. But David, I believe you uh, you gave it a wide berth. I can't possibly imagine why. <laughs> and there's a rather good thriller that Channel Four put out, uh, um, uh, and that uh, Sarah, my wife, and I quite like. I'm, 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 I'm feeling, I'm feeling. What do, you, what, what do you? I'm feeling jaded. Does that mean I've got jade somewhere? I mean, I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling pretty jaded about debates and so on. I've seen that a lot of them in my career. Um, the conversation about them never really alters very much. The kind of punditry around them is always pretty much the same, uh, and so on. There's a kind of there, uh, one of the things we rush to do is a kind of massive 
fast over-interpretation because we've got so much airtime to fill and so on. And I, and I don't like that. And I thought, well, what I'd just do is sit this one out and see how the outtakes went through social media and so on and see what the kind of rumble uh, about it is. And we all know the kind of basic story, which is Sunak needed to launch a knockout blow, but he probably didn't quite get it. So it's advantage trust or whatever. And that may be true and it may not be true and so on. It may be that trust has much more successfully channeled the kind of things that um, that Tories want, including, and I hadn't realised this before, very cleverly, um, not actually resigning from, mm. from Boris Johnson's government, allowing her to pick up that section of the disgruntled Tory members who wanted him to stay. I'd never seen that one coming because, of course, there's no equivalent of it in the actual electorate. It only exists in this kind of one place, really. And so I hadn't seen that. And you only really begin to realise it when you look at the reactions to the debate on social media and elsewhere. So, no, I didn't watch it. Um, uh, and I'm very, very interested to hear what Rachel thinks about how it went and how it was reported and so on from, I think, a much less jaded perspective. Well, Rachel, oblige us. You know, what, what, are, your, what are your key takeaways from last night? Give David the, the primer he needs. I'm, I'm, I'm touched that you think I'm less jaded because I think David is absolutely right. Firstly, um, I don't think he had to admit that he didn't watch it. Uh, I think that it's perfectly, perfectly possible to skip it, look at the social media reaction, read the reports and then say, oh, yes, of course. Well, in the 15th minute when it went on to the economy and Rishi Sunak said that the tax rush, tax cuts were a sugar rush and Liz Truss gave him a very odd look. I mean, you could totally have styled it out. That's, that's the uh, columnist's prerogative, isn't it? Comment very, not that either of you have ever done this, comment very confidently on things you may not have I, read I in have, uh, minute detail. I, I may have done the odd book review, not quite having got to the uh, the, the final page. Um, but I, I, I do think, yes, it, it is massively overblown the amount of attention that we pay to this. There is something still quite fascinating about watching two high-profile cabinet uh, members or former cabinet members uh, in the case of Rishi Sunak who you know a month ago were basically running the country and Boris Johnson's government trashing 12 years of Tory governance and not just uh, the last 12 years actually um, Liz Truss made a huge thing about her failing comprehensive school and the opportunities that weren't available to her growing up as a teenager which would have been uh, under various Tory governments um, which is quite interesting because she is obviously trying to channel margaret thatcher she's been wearing thatcher's clothes or uh I, I, I hope copies of them. Um, <laughs> she's she's had voice coaching to make her uh, to, to make her, her, her voice sound lower. She's really trying to go for this kind of new twenty first century Thatcher sort of position, and then saying, "Oh yeah, I grew up under Thatcher, and I didn't get any opportunities at all," which is just a bit odd. And what's really odd is that no one seems to care about that. We're just going along with the role play. We're going along with with the narratives there, in the same way that we're going along with the fact that even though Liz Truss campaigned for Remain, she has, uh, to quote Charlotte Ivers, uh, Brexit vibes. And Rishi Sunak, uh, while he campaigned for, for Brexit, has, has Remain vibes. 
Yeah. David, as someone who saw the wages, the, original... the wages of sin are death, aren't they, Patrick? <laughs> the wages of sin are death. Well, I mean, exactly. I, and I love this image that you just kind of that you made, Rachel, which is it's just possible that say there's probably a Thatcher museum, I don't know, in in Dallas or somewhere like mm. that, and they've got the original dress, and someone <laughs> from Liz, someone from Liz's trust's entourage asked to borrow it for, uh, for for a while so that she could actually wear it, um, and and that's that's essentially what you're saying. They are the real clothes. This She's is some really... sort of Norman Bates style tribute to the mummy as they uh, as they call her among the Tories faithful. that's right mother mother <laughs> you know having seen the original david how does liz trust compare as a sequel to mrs t it's it's quite it was quite interesting i mean it's not it's not just i mean when you when you played that little thing off again no 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 uh, and so on which was actually the speech that helped bring about her downfall <clears throat> the resignation of sir jeffrey howe mm. um uh, and so on it's a reminder of just how harsh her talking was. I mean, it was just sort of, and I think there's something in that kind of absolutely adamantine certainty and clarity that Liz Truss very well much wants to reach. And so that every answer is within the kind of circular pattern of a notion of how the economy works, of how society works. You know, you can't sp- spend more than you earn and ta- etc. So that at the very least, Voting Tories know where they are in a mm. world which has cast them adrift into mayhem and chaos and so on. So they can find that rock again that they want to situate themselves upon. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I think she does that pretty successfully. And actually, she doesn't sound quite as harsh as the original does, who, whose harshness probably wouldn't go down so well these days as it did then. No, I think you're right. And I think also Liz Truss has... But Liz Truss has definitely emulated Margaret Thatcher. If you compare her to the famous cheese speech of 10 years ago, you know, the voice has gone down an octave. She speaks in a much more grave and almost stentorian style. She's clearly uh, taken her cues there. Uh, you know, but I think that's a resounding... No. No. From, from both of you as to last night's debate. And given you mentioned the economy, David, let's move on across the floor to a quite interesting speech Keir Starmer gave yesterday that's been uh, largely overshadowed, of course, by the race for the next Prime Minister. Um, and, Rachel, I'm wondering what you make of this. When Keir Starmer ran for the Labour leadership, and, you know, I remember at the time, you know, some of us wrote books about this in which we declared that, you know, the, the centre <laughs> of gravity of the Labour Party had moved irrevocably to the left. And um, that, that conclusion uh, was, was hastily revised in, in, in paperback anyway. But, um, you know, Keir Starmer, is now, Keir Starmer is now saying that he's not going to renationalise the railways, water energy what do you make of this Rachel is this him just you know reckoning with inevitable electoral gravity or is he being sort of shifty and you know dishonest in a way that uh politicians shouldn't be I don't think it's dishonest to change policies on things I certainly don't think it's dishonest to say something was in our 2019 manifesto we got a staggeringly bad election result that was wholesale rejected by voters, uh, even though the, the policy itself on its own might have seemed popular. Clearly, that manifesto wasn't. Uh, and therefore, we're, we're, we're changing, we're moving in a different direction. Uh, that's that's not dishonest. In fact, that's kind of what I would hope politicians should do if they want to... Uh, if they, if they want to win elections and, and kind of move with the times. I think the issue that Keir Starmer has is that he's abandoned that and people are still, you know, two years in, a bit confused about what Labour is or what Labour stands for. And uh, he hasn't really got any kind of ideological 
vision for uh, Britain under Labour to replace that Corbynite left, let's nationalise everything position. Now, um, he's trying to run it run a a sort of shadow campaign on the idea that Labour can be trusted with the economy when the Tories can't. Now, that's quite effective uh, at a time during a cost of living crisis when particularly they might he might be facing Rishi Sunak, who is the man who sort of seemed to forget that the cost of living crisis was happening until it was sort of too late. And he offered a sort of handful of of change to to help people that really hasn't even touched the sides. So it's an effective strategy to go for. Okay, people aren't trusting the Conservatives on the economy. Economy, maybe they'll trust us instead. Well, they won't trust us if we're just recycling um, sort of Corbynite, nationalise everything policies. So we need to do something else. I can follow the logic up to that point. The problem is I can't see what he's replaced it with. Uh, and uh, all he seems to have done is made his own party really, really, really unhappy at a crucial moment when everyone else is watching the Tories. Uh, David, what do you make of Keir Starmer, the born again Blairite? Um I, th- I think it was pretty inevitable, really. And, and by born-again Blairite, what it means is um, uh, you have to say to the electorate that uh, you can handle things mm. uh, uh, properly whilst making um, probably relatively incremental but important changes. That's your, that's going to be essentially uh, your message if you're going to actually, if you're going to win an election. Uh, and it's a trick. I mean, after all, Labour lost so badly at the last election that if Labour, if they were actually even to be the largest party at the next election, that would be a considerable uh, achievement in terms of uh, in terms of seats gained and so on um so what it's and that is a kind of tricky thing because everybody is shouting vision at him uh and so on you know we don't know what you stand for you're boring you're dull you've got a face like a brick you know your, your voice is too nasal. and that's just his shadow and- cabinet and that's just his face of shadow cabinet. And then, you know, your, your policies are also nasal and look like a brick and so on. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it, is, it, it is a real difficulty. But the thing that struck me that was quite positive about him explaining his policies was first, we've got to be long term. We've got to be for the long term. In other words, a large number of our economic and uh, social problems are structural. And at the moment, we're simply sticking bandages and plasters on various kinds of places while the whole thing uh, degenerates. And at some point or other, you have to put your foot on the ball and say, what do we actually need to do here? I think that's quite a strong argument. Um, that leaves in prey, obviously, is the, um, what you would do immediately. Well, that answer set, uh, is based on what you get to when you get to 2024. And I, though I, I think there will be certainly a Labour, uh, for my money, a Labour government at the end of uh, after the next election. Uh, but I don't know that it will be a majority government. And the th- and the problems that that Labour government will face will be absolutely huge. I mean, just enormous and long, uh, you know, and hugely long term. But none of them, Orms, none of them will be of Labour's actual making. So it's a it, it's a it's a very kind of tricky situation. So I think stressing your 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 competence. It's often said that oppositions don't win the elections. Uh, governments uh, lose uh, gov- them. Governments lose them. Um, this government is determined to lose the next election and so on and should lose the next election. And the country wants it to lose the next election, by and large, I, I feel. They're just not totally convinced about who they want to, to pick it up instead. Uh, um, so I thought the Liverpool speech is a start. Um, the one problem he has, of course, is that it does mean him ditching a whole lot of pledges he made in order to get elected as leader and thereby mm. <laughs> hang, hang all kinds of lessons for the present leadership election, which is they can say what they like now 
in order to get the membership's votes, it won't be what they're saying by the time they've been in power for one or two years. That was Rachel Cunliffe and David Aronovich there. Up next, what happens when a former Prime Minister wants to run the country again? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yes, in our big thing at 11 o'clock, we're talking Boris Johnson's comeback. Rumours are already swirling. When's he going to get the message that the Prime Minister is plotting his route back to number 10? But could it really happen? As 10,000 Tory members allegedly put their names to a petition demanding that he be put on the final leadership ballot, and Tory donor Peter Crudis claims the PM himself told him he wants to stay on just last week, his final PMQ sign-off feels less a farewell than a threat. I want to thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to, I want to thank my rival friend uh, opposite, Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. Yeah, that was Boris Johnson, child of the 80, channelling Arnie's Terminator there. A man who, of course, said... I'll be back. Now, that might seem like classic Johnsonian vanity now, just weeks after he was chucked out by his cabinet, but history tells us it's not entirely out of the question that a Prime Minister should come back after being rejected by their electorate or indeed by their party. Over the next half hour, we'll speak to Labour MP Nick Thomas-Simmons, whose biography of Harold Wilson, the comeback kid of the 60s and 70s, is out next summer, and we'll hear from Bernard Lagan, the Times man in Sydney, on Australia's merry-go-round of backstabbing Prime Ministers. And to cap it off, I'll ask Johnson advisor, former Johnson advisor rather, I don't want to libel him, Tim Montgomery, on what the man himself might be plotting. Now, first though, I spoke to Professor, professor Richard Toy earlier. He's a professor of history at the University of Exeter and the author of several books on Churchill, including Winston Churchill, A Life in the News. I began by asking him how Churchill managed to take power a second time in 1951, not long after decisively losing a general election in 1945. Longer term context of this is his big defeat in 1945. And of course, at this stage, quite a lot of people within the Conservative Party or within the higher levels of the Conservative Party, um, you know, started to think it might be a good idea if he made way for a younger man, such as Anthony Eden, for example, who was his kind of heir apparent. Um, there was no mechanism really for getting rid of a leader. And the um, so the shadow ministers were kind of talking amongst themselves and they uh, nominated uh, the lucky man uh, who was the chief whip to go and tell uh, Churchill that uh, everybody thought he should retire. They didn't want to do it to his face. So they kind of delegated somebody else. 
and essentially Churchill uh, flatly refused when this was put to him. And I think it was because he had this national hero status that made it very difficult for anybody to openly speak out against him. And so he was able to continue as leader of the opposition uh, for six years during Clement Hackney's Labour government. He fought an election in early 1950, which the Labour Party won, but only narrowly. So that kind of gave the Conservatives some hope that if there was a further election, they might win. And indeed, in due course, uh, in the autumn of 1951, Attlee did call a further election. And it was this that allowed Churchill to get back into power, though with uh, at that stage a fairly small majority. And one of the key differences you just touched on it there is public opinion. Boris Johnson, when he's talking about or plotting his comeback, is doing so in defiance of uh, polling and the obvious public enmity towards him or his collapse uh, in favourability. You say Boris uh, Winston Churchill, rather, had a national hero status. Did that endure despite his defeat in 1945? It did. I mean, of course, he was because he was still active in politics, that there was plenty of willingness to criticise him on other grounds. But his, his war leadership in general uh, wasn't questioned. I think, of course, the, the other key difference is that he remained as leader of the opposition, a position from which he couldn't really be dislodged. And that is a big difference between him and Boris Johnson, quite aside from whatever public opinion might do. Because if Boris Johnson were to mount a comeback, then under the current rules, he would have to in some way uh, be selected by the Conservative MPs to be one of the two people put forward to the membership. Now, with the membership, he may be or seems to be much more popular um, either than he is with the public in general or with Conservative MPs. So if it really were down to the membership, uh, Boris Johnson might stand a good chance. But... um, Unless the Conservative MPs radically change their opinion, I don't really see why they would, uh, there is a very important obstacle to him making a comeback. Though I would also say that if he does stay in Parliament, uh, then he has got the potential, he's got the power to do an awful lot of mischief-making so he can possibly destabilise whoever the new leader is, although not necessarily with a realistic chance of returning to the leadership himself. And when Churchill won in 1951, to what extent was it a a reaction against six years of Labour government? Or to what extent was it a yearning to see Winston back in office? Because we all remember those posters in 1945 of Churchill and the uh, exhortation to let, let him finish the job. By 1951, is it a yearning to see Churchill back in office? Or is it you know, a an equal and opposite reaction to Labour government, the voters just wanted a Conservative, or, or was the fact that it was Churchill decisive? Well, um, I think he was a kind of net asset to the Conservative Party still at that point. What you have to remember is that, in fact, the Labour Party won more votes in that election than the Conservatives did, and mm. it was the uh, oddities of the first-past-the-post electoral system, which ended up giving the Conservatives a majority. Or rather, one might say that what happened was that those Labour votes were piled up in traditional Labour seats, uh, and it was perhaps the, sort of the middle classes, and particularly the middle classes maybe in the south and east of, of the country, um, who had moved away from Labour 
as a consequence of policies of austerity and continued uh, rationing and controls, which um, in some ways affected them more than uh, it did working class people because there was an absence of the luxuries which middle class people had been you know, used to enjoying in the pre-war years. And so I think it's more complicated than just everybody kind of having a sort of sentimental wish for Churchill to come back. But he still was a powerful uh, politician who could make um, compelling speeches um, and uh, you know, still still did seem like. Uh, to, to many, as, 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 a, as a fairly dynamic figure, even though, of course, he was, uh, at the time he returned to office, uh, 76 years old and um, in, Not in, the best health. in a weakened state of health. Mm. And, uh, you know, interestingly, those those very voters in the in the south of England, those middle class voters, the voters now turned off the Conservative Party by Boris Johnson. Richard, I, I just wanted to ask one more question. What do you think has changed about our political culture that... You know, in the 1940s, 50s, even as late as the 70s and 80s, it was completely normal for a, a leader to stay on after losing an election and then fight again without, you know, there were all, there, you know, there are always whispers about their position, but more often than not, your Churchills, your Wilsons, your, uh, even your Edward Heaths stay on, fight multiple elections. Neil Kinnock, for instance, what do you think has changed? What, what has been decisive in, in changing that culture? Well, um, I think that in, in some ways it's down to the fact that politicians that seem not to have you know, that level of endurance. So if Boris Johnson were to attempt this, I think you might say, well, perhaps this is a 10 year project rather than a one year or a two year project. And if you could sort of stick uh, in the House of Commons and court MPs and make serious speeches, all, all things which I think he's rather unlikely to do, actually. But if he did it, then he might be in a position in 10 years to you know, present himself as the new kind of changed Boris Johnson, who might have a chance of a comeback. I think that um, the, it is now very tempting uh, for former prime ministers to quit, to sort of join the highly paid lecture circuit um, and to um, you know, sort of really kind of throw in the towel. And I think that I, it may be part of a phenomenon of political life in general, um, sort of speeding up. Remember that mm. um, Churchill was somebody who became an MP, was elected for the first time in 1900, and finally, 40 years later, succeeded in becoming prime minister for the first time. Um, if you um, think of more recent prime ministers, then they've had a much shorter uh, sort of, time between entering the commons for the first time and becoming prime minister and then they've shown, shown a, sort of a, a sort of a willingness or a desire to quickly get out again at the other end. Well that was Professor Richard Toy from the University of Exeter talking about Winston Churchill, Boris Johnson's great political hero and the man he seeks to emulate when he threatens a comeback. Coming up we'll speak to Labour frontbencher Nick Thomas-Simmons, a biographer of Harold Wilson about a more recent example of a Prime Minister who had a second bite of the cherry and Bernard Lagan, the Times' Sydney correspondent on Australia's culture of regicide. And we'll also come up to the modern day and the man himself with former Boris Johnson advisor Tim Montgomery on the man's chances for a comeback. More recently, Harold Wilson uh, won four general elections with a four-year gap. Now, who better to speak to than Nick Thomas-Simmons, who is Labour's shadow cabinet minister, but also a, a biographer of Harold Wilson. His book comes out this summer. Nick, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Very good morning, uh, Patrick, and very good to be joining you this morning. Can you talk us through, because obviously Wilson won in 64, he won in 66, 
lost in Edward Heath to 1970, in 1970 rather, and then won two elections in 1974, albeit narrowly. Given the Labour Party wasn't a very happy ship, it was very divided, uh, you know, not a million miles away from the Tory party now, although, you know, much more functional organisation, I think you'd argue. How was it that he was able not only to hang on to power, but then come back and win again? Well, Harold lost unexpectedly in 1970. The opinion polls all pointed to a Labour victory. So it was a Surprise defeat, but Harold's strategic brain is what allowed him to navigate a very difficult parliament in a number of different ways that I'll come to in a moment, and then actually bring Labour back to power in 1974, which is a remarkable achievement. I mean, other periods that Labour's been in opposition after 1951, after 1979, indeed so far since 2010, have been long periods. But Harold bucked that trend and was able to bring Labour back to power after one parliament. And I think the first part of it, interestingly, was a recognition after 1970 that the public wouldn't want to hear from him for a while. So he actually said when he lost in June 1970 that he was going to have a quieter year. He would allow Heath to have that victory and would then come back to prominence in early 1971 and actually spent his time writing a memoir of that first period that he had in government between 1964 and 1970. And what he then did was to apply himself to the major issue of that parliament. And the major issue of that parliament was the entry into what was then the EEC. And Harold, uh, at the time, he was accused of inconsistency but actually what he did was to move Labour to a position where he or Labour opposed entry into the EC, into the common market, but opposed it on the Tory terms. So he managed largely to keep together those parts of the party that passionately wanted to join, those parts of the party, mostly then on the left, who did not want to join and adopted the policy of a ref of a renegotiation and a referendum, took that policy into the two general elections of 1974, and then, of course, successfully won the referendum in 1975. So it was involved a lot of strategic thinking, uh, bridging divides within the party, and careful and thoughtful planning, not skills for which Boris Johnson, it's safe to say, is particularly renowned. I, th I think that's right. And I think if you look at the the other aspects of that parliament that, that Harold had to deal with, he wanted to keep the party's uh, prospectus for government in a more moderate position as, as he saw it. So when the the party tried to push on to him a proposal that 25 of the leading 100 companies would uh, all be brought into public ownership. He watered it down so that it would just be a pragmatic extension of ownership. And he thought that was important to do. But he also dealt extremely well in the later part of that parliament with the problem of inflation. I mean, by late 1973, Edward Heath was having to conserve energy with the three day week closing down television at 10.30 in the evening. And Harold Wilson's answer to this was what became known as the social contract, that he would ask 
trade unions to voluntarily restrain uh, demands for wage increases in return for wider social reform, whether it was on housing, whether it was on food subsidy, whether it was on things like health and safety at work, which when he came back into power, he has a fine legacy on. So he was very strategic, able to keep the party together, whilst at the same time presenting a real alternative to the public. And just briefly, Nick, why were the public willing to give a man they had rejected in 1970 that second chance? Because we're talking about Boris Johnson's comeback. The idea that the public would, you know, Harold Wilson was never resound, uh, rejected personally, as resoundingly as Boris Johnson has been by the public and his own party. But why do you think the public then were willing to give Harold Wilson another bite of the cherry? Harold Wilson was never personally discredited in the way that, that Boris Johnson is because of his own personal conduct. But you have to remember as well that Harold always did remain popular with the public. He wasn't always popular with every part of his own party. And in both 1971 and 1972, the New Statesman was writing very critical editorials in, in one of them asking uh, for him to stand down. But he always had this, this popular touch with the public you know he had the you know the the pipe smoking the uh the, the hp source notes, the hp source absolutely he always had this this feel for the public and that remained actually not only in that parliament but even after he left office i mean it's still in 1978-79 harold was appearing on the morecambe and wise christmas show he briefly had his own chat show Friday night at Saturday, Saturday morning. morning, of course. So he was always someone who had a personal popularity with the public. And I think that was a lot to do with why the public were willing to give him that additional chance and why he won remarkably in post-war British politics four or five general elections. Sounds not too dissimilar there with his uh, light entertainment career to a pre-office pre, uh, Boris Johnson, but I don't think he's going to be revisiting the studios in a hurry. Nick Thomas-Simmons, uh, Labour frontbencher and biographer of Harold Wilson. Fascinating stuff. Now, now let's head down under for a more recent example of Prime Ministers who've come back very shortly after rejection from their own party. Kevin Rudd became uh, Prime Minister as Australia's Labour leader in 2007, lost an election in 2010, uh, but then returned to... a leadership election in 2010, rather, but returned to government just three years later after ousting his one-term ally and uh, the woman who ousted him, Julia Gillard. It's a remarkable story, and I think our politics are heading the same way as Australia's. Uh, let's speak to Bernard Lagan, the Times of London, Australia. He joins me now. Bernard... That must have been a crazy period to cover in Australian politics. Ah, well, it was. Uh, and when you look back on it, we've had um, 14 prime, sorry, eight prime ministers in the last 14 years, which is a, a real uh, quite fast-moving, revolving door. Uh, and it really began, as you say, uh, in 2010. Now, Kevin Rudd, won a landslide victory in late 2007. Um, he put Labor in, into power after quite a long period in opposition. Um, and he lasted just two years before his own party turned on him. Um, and I was out of the country at the time. I was living in New York at that stage. And I was just stunned, but as, as many people were in Australia, because a lot of people didn't see this coming. Kevin Rudd remained popular with voters, but 
but became deeply unpopular within his own party. Um, the polls were on the wane a bit, but the difficulty, the, the criticism uh, levelled at Rudd by Labour MPs was that he was uh, too centralised and that he didn't consult and that he had a kitchen cabinet which was somehow aloof from most MPs. And, and so they, uh, they got rid of him in 2010, which was quite astonishing. Replaced him with Julia Gillard, as you, as you said. She lasted until 2013 when Tony Abbott had become opposition leader. She was under siege on climate policy. The Labour Party were crashing in the polls. And who did they turn to but Kevin Rudd? And they brought him back. And he came back, I think, in June 2013 as Prime Minister, went to an election in September and lost uh, lost heavily to Tony Abbott. What, um, what is it, Bernard, uh, do you think? Uh, Kevin Rudd. Uh, about Australia, sorry to interrupt, about sorry. Australian political culture. Because this is fairly common, and you see it in other in opposition as well. You know, Malcolm Turnbull was the Liberal leader for a while and then was ousted and then came back. Uh, you know, as well as Rudd and Gillard knocking each other out of office. Do you, wh- what is it about Australian political culture that means that no sooner has a PM been ousted or a leader been ousted, they can then return as the as the saviour? Do you think it's because in Australia your parliaments are much shorter than ours? Ours can run for five years, but the lifetime of an Australian parliament, particularly the House of Representatives, is, is three years, isn't it? Do you think just the pace of life in Australia is much, political life in Australia rather, is much quicker and so people are always frantic and if something isn't working they, you know, reach for the ice pick and put it in the back of the leader's head? Yes, I think that's a very big part of it. As you say, we only have three-year terms and quite often we don't get to 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 see the full three years out. Often a snap election will be called so the term might be two and a half years. But certainly that's it. And I think the other thing uh, is the impact of polling. Um, like in Britain, a lot of, pub- a lot of pu- public opinion polling takes place here by the media outlets um, and uh, great stock is put in that by the politicians and when uh, the numbers go down and when the trends go down, they start to panic and they change leaders. Um, and that has been the case. And indeed, you know, even when Malcolm Turnbull, uh, from the other side of politics, the centre-right, when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister in, in, um, in 2013, he only lasted two years until he was rolled by Malcolm Turnbull. And Turnbull said, made very, very clear, the reason I'm doing this is because the polls are terrible. We're going to do this. Of course, then Turnbull got in and the polls remain, became mm. poor. And he ignored them. He said, well, look, you know, polls don't matter. Uh, so, you know, that, 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 that's what happened uh, over that and, period. And I think we've got to a point where both, both sides of politics are really over it. Um, I'd be surprised if Anthony Albanese, the new prime minister, is dumped by his, uh, his own MPs. You know, as you say, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Of course, Kevin Rudd uh, then went on to be ousted by Tony Abbott by the public. So if the Australians closely advising Boris Johnson are looking down under for inspiration. It doesn't always work and it didn't for Kevin Rudd. But anyway, listening to that is Tim Montgomery. He was one of the first people to break the news that Boris Johnson was mulling a comeback. He worked in Number 10 for a while, but also created the Tory grassroots site Conservative Home, former comment editor of The Times, and yes, a former special advisor to Boris Johnson too. So he knows what he's talking about, both in Number 10 and the Tory grassroots. He joins us now. Tim, Good morning. Do you really think? Morning, do you think Boris is serious about this? 
if Boris is insofar as Boris is serious about anything, Patrick, <laughs> I think he probably is um, serious about this. I think there's there's still a real state of denial. I think in Number Ten and around the Prime Minister about the nature of you know his expulsion from from office. Um, he still doesn't really think he did anything wrong. He still dwells on that massive election victory in 2019. And I think his general mood of, you know, why are they getting rid of me, has sort of been underlined by the, what I think a lot of Tory members feel as well, is a pretty uninspiring final two in the leadership contest. I think if the party had gone perhaps for a Kemi Badenoch or a Tom Tugendhat in the, in the final round, there would have been a sort of less of a feel of, my goodness, what have we done, buyer's remorse, etc. But I think that sense is real in the Conservative Party at the moment, and it's feeding this sense in Boris's mind that perhaps he can make a comeback. And I was going to say Boris Johnson is a keen student of history, perhaps that's flattering, you know, but he has, he has, a, he has a very keen sense and intuitive understanding of this, these great man narratives and these these stories from British history, do you think he's been looking at examples like Churchill and thinking, he did it, why can't I? Your guess is as good as mine on that front. But of course, I think we both do know that he's often, you know, he's written a book about Churchill. He certainly knows uh, what Churchill has done in his past. And he probably does fancy himself, not least because of the war in Ukraine, which has been, I think, I'm quite a critic of Boris Johnson, but Britain's leadership of the war in Ukraine and what we've done to help Kiev and Zelensky has been probably the, the finest thing that the Prime Minister has done since um, he won that 2019 election. So, yes, there's probably a little bit of thinking he can be Churchill in that respect as well. And, and obviously, Tim, any comeback Boris Johnson makes or doesn't will depend on three audiences, and, and you know all of them well, Conservative MPs, Conservative members, and um, let's not forget the voting public. Just run us through briefly where do you think he, he stands in the popularity stakes among those three groups and whether his position is at all recoverable? Look, um, Patrick, I have learned in politics of late not to make too many hard and fast <laughs> predictions. <laughs> Funny things keep happening and I've got so many things wrong. So I wouldn't rule out a uh, comeback, but I think it's unlikely in, in each of those, amongst each of those three um, electorates. I think particularly amongst the MPs, I think there is a sense that government just wasn't working with Boris Johnson. And what I got from ministers quite often was not a complaint that decisions weren't taken by number 10, but decisions were constantly taken that, you know, um, weren't against previous decisions that were taken, that um, ministers would agree one thing with Downing Street, with Boris Johnson and his advisers, and a little bit like, you know, the last person who sat on him, he would then change it. There was there was a basic dysfunction in government, as well as the you know dishonesty that I don't think Tory MPs will ever want to return to. I think Tory members have probably a sense of, my goodness, uh, Boris is better than Rishi or Liz at the moment, or certainly I think a lot of them feel that. But, 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 I think if they dwell on recent record for very long, you know, who has put up all the taxes? Um, why isn't immigration being controlled? Are we really taking advantage of the uh, opportunities of Brexit? I don't think the buyer's remorse will last that long. And as for the electorate at large, you know, there was the opinion polls were definitely clear. There was a real souring 
towards Boris Johnson because I don't think most voters thought they were the government was really getting to grips with the cost of living crisis. Well, that's all we've got time for this episode. I'll be back for tomorrow with a big thing on what Labour voters think of the two Tory candidates and who will be the biggest challenge to the opposition. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. You've got me for a fortnight. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.